Hey, thanks for downloading the podcast. And remember, if you want to listen live, download the iHeartRadio app, download the TuneIn app, and just search for Fantasy Sports Radio Network, and you can listen to this program live. Also, if you want to watch the video of this podcast, check us out on YouTube, on Twitch, or on Periscope, and type in, you guessed it, Fantasy Sports Network. You'll find us there. Enjoy the show, and thanks for listening. The Fantasy Sports Radio Network is now going for the green with Daily Roto. Welcome to this week's edition of Going for the Green, brought to you by the Fantasy Sports Network. I'm Mike Leone of DailyRoto.com. Please make sure to check us out for premium fantasy golf projections and betting tools and all the good stuff that the smart guys at Data Golf provide for us. I'm here today with Colin Drew, also of DailyRoto.com, to break down this week's Wells Fargo Championship that's going to be held back at Quail Hollow. Before we get too far into that, though, Colin, uh, let's do a quick recap of last week where we had the Zurich Open, which was that team event and ended up getting taken down by Billy Horschel and Scott Piercy, which is a little surprising when you look at the list of teams and you would think that in a team event when you see some of these monster pairings that the edge would be increased um, from having two higher skilled golfers versus two lower skilled golfers but the final leaderboard looks like you know maybe the exact opposite happened and there was actually a bit more variance than we're used to seeing yeah i definitely thought it was interesting i know the guys at data golf had posed that question as well on twitter which is just you kind of would expect that the two strong players would end up leading to uh, even better team and it didn't seem like that was the case uh, one of the, the reasons i hypothesized it might be is just because in when two of the rounds are best ball format like you're not really going to be making bogeys like chances of two guys both making bogey or worse on a single hole are really low and so in a way maybe the the top golfers are kind of where they are not just because they make birdies but also because of bogey avoidance and in that way maybe half of the edge uh, kind of gets erased because bogey avoidance is less of a thing so i don't know i mean i didn't end up catching a ton of it um part of that was just life uh, but part of that also is no fantasy no dfs and you know the european tour uh, dfs last week was something that i ended up having a great week um and i, I didn't know much about any of the golfers but <laughs> i just kind of trusted the probabilities and the work that the data golf guys were able to put together and so ended up coming in second in the the five dollar gpp so i had been on a little bit of a slump in the pga tour over the past month so it was nice to kind of turn things around and maybe i need to play a little bit more european tour dfs yeah, it was nice to see you rub that in while me and uh, Drew Dinkmeyer here took the week off. Didn't benefit from these good projections that Data Golf put out for us. Again, they did cover the Euro Tour with no PGA event, and I feel like I've become a much better golf fan since DFS got in, you know, into my life as a huge hobby and, and getting me into the golf world. But I do have to say, I really didn't pay much attention to the Zero Open this week. I just kind of took the week off. Uh, reset myself here. Excited though to get back at it with the Wells Fargo Championship. We got a really loaded field here. A lot of names up top. But before we get into that, uh, let's just give some background, uh, at this event. Last year, uh, the PGA Championship was actually played at Quail Hollow. So the Wells Fargo Championship was played at Eagle Point Golf Club. Uh, that was just a one year thing because they were playing the PGA Championship at Quail Hollow. This year, the Wells Fargo Championship right back at Quail Hollow. We saw Justin Thomas take down the PGA Championship last year at Quail Hollow. And this is a long course. It's a 75-50 plus yardage, par 71. And when you look at the par adjusted distance, it's actually the second longest course on tour. Yeah, and it's one of the things, if you are looking at um, tools, whether it's course history uh, or for this event or course history for the PGA Championship, you just need to make sure you're using the right years. Uh, and so whether it's the course history data is on our site right now, it's defaulted to the 2017 PGA Championship because that's really the only data we have on this new course setup. So they, they completely re- redid a few different holes um, and eliminated a couple. And so it's, it's going to be similar. Uh, I, you know, I, I think, you know, probably 
70, you know, percent or so of the course it is playing similar. And so it's still going to test golfers in a similar way to uh, how the course was set up previously. And then if you are, if you want to look at that data, then you're looking at kind of the Wells Fargo championship data from, you know, 2010 to 2016. Um, so if you are looking at all that stuff, just kind of be aware of it. I know we're never huge on course history in general, but uh, it is something that we, we try to look at a little bit just to understand if there are any course fit elements at play. I do think that there are just because I do think that uh, this course does have some outlier characteristics just because of its length and uh, really does favor tee to green game with a little bit less emphasis on putting. Uh, I know for a little while you guys were, were talking about going to the PGA Championship last year. Did, did you guys go to this event or the Wells Fargo or did you guys skip it all together and just go to the park? <laughs> We didn't, we didn't end up going. We were in Charlotte for our daily roto palooza, but we didn't end up making it to the event. I think Adam, uh, Hummel, who was with us, uh, the founder of Lou Dogs with us with daily roto for a couple of years as we got it started. He ended up going one of the days, but you know, most of the crew didn't go. We were, I just remember tilting Francesco Molinari because it's a guy that I play every single week. I get ripped on it for Twitter and I said, okay, this long course, uh, you know, to win the million maker, you're going to need a huge upside because PGA championship major. We saw a million maker. I was like the combination of needing such a, a high end outcome out of Molinari and that he doesn't fit like a really long course. Well, I'm just not going to play him at all. I mean, what's the worst case scenario? He D20s, you know, no big deal. And then, uh, he went nuts and I believe came in second place and, that was just angry the whole time. <laughs> yeah, it makes sense. I think he ran really hot with the putter. I think he played decently to the green, but I also think he ran super hot with the putter, which is not not the Molinari that we're used to playing. Um, so I think that's one of the things you can do is look at the guys last year who played it best from tee to green. A guy like Brooks Kepka was actually number one in the field, uh, tee to green. And obviously, just, Justin Thomas was the winner of the event. Um I would say that it will probably be an easier setup this year. The rough is going to be shorter. You would think the pin placements will be a little bit easier just because if they do want to host a major in the future, you, you want the major to kind of be a unique event and different than the standard tour event. So like you said, really strong field this week. Uh, a lot of these guys, it's the first time that we've seen them since the Masters. So looking forward to it. All right. Uh, I guess let, let's get into this week and – the initial outlook at our finished probability model where you, you know, one of the things I know, Colin, you like to do to prepare for the week is to look at uh, the optimal lineups based on top 20, made cut, and it seems like those lineups are a bit more balanced uh, with the, the very high end, slightly overpriced, which is interesting because uh, we are projecting quite a bit of ownership on uh, some of the expensive guys, particularly Rory, given his course history here and the fact that uh, he fits that off-the-tee game that you want to see to succeed here. Yeah, I, I think um, the balance, I, I guess it's partly because of the, the pricing on the top end guys uh, with uh, JT, Rory, and Fowler, and then partly just because there's only a few guys uh, who are priced up there. Sometimes we see, you know, six, seven guys at 10K plus, only four this week, and in re- only three at 11K plus. So you, people have the salary to spend. They kind of have to spend it on someone. It'll be interesting to see if people end up um, – you know, end up wanting to pay up just because the price difference between Rory, JT, Fowler, and the rest is is pretty dramatic. Obviously, Rory's history here, like you said, he's made the cut seven of eight times at this course to win six top ten finishes, and and definitely one of those courses that fits Rory when his game is on. Uh, obviously, Rory started to come back into form a little bit before the Masters, and and was uh, contending in the Masters for a long time, and so I think it definitely makes sense why Rory would be a favorite in Vegas. Um, and it makes sense why he's priced up there, but it's just a question of whether or not you can uh, you know, build around him effectively or build around JT effectively. Uh, those two stand out to me a little bit more so than Fowler. And I think in general, I'm leaning towards more of the, the balance approach or balance contrarian approach, uh, especially if the ownership does linger. You would think that with Fowler's uh, you know, recent form in his course history, that that seems like a, a reasonable ownership projection. Um, I could see maybe Fowler being a little bit inflated early in the week and coming down a little bit as the week carries along. Yeah, I'm definitely a sucker for these balanced lineups. And it's not only that you have those three guys up top that are priced at 11K plus and follow Rory and Justin Thomas, but 
you get a pretty big drop off after that. You've got Jason Day at 10-2, but then down to that, you've got a bunch of guys in the low nines, Colin, with Fleetwood, Tiger Woods, Mickelson, Hideki, all below 9,500. Uh, even into the eights at 8,900, you've got Paul Casey. So there are plenty of options if you want to go a bit more balanced and, and maybe even not like super mega balanced with like a bunch of 8K guys, but you could get in. I don't know. I mean, it seems like you can get in like three to four of those 9K guys and then go cheap in your last two spots to round it out. Yeah, I definitely think you can from the macro roster construction and probably will go that way with the majority. Uh, I do think there's merit to, uh, you know, trying to, if you want exposure to JT and Rory, just I, th- I think one of the guys I'll probably be making a manual adjustment up on in the fancy model is Justin Thomas, um, just because of how strongly he rates in the finished probability model. And I'll probably want to force a little bit of exposure to him. I think one of the things that I like about him, it's a little bit different than Rory. Um, Rory, it seems like a lot of his damage comes from his driver, uh, rightfully so. And he doesn't necessarily have the the same balance to his game that Justin Thomas does. And so looking at the strokes gain trend data that you can look at for each event, um, JT has shown kind of the outlier upside with his driver, but also with his approach and his putter. And so it feels like there's a bunch of different elements to his game that can kind of pick him up on a given week, and it doesn't necessarily have to rely on one uh, skill set. So of, of those guys, I guess a lot of it will come down to ownership. If I end up playing Rory at all, um, probably play JT a little bit. And then Fowler, I, I don't like at that price and I would only want to play him if the ownership was projecting in the single digits, which it's not right now. Yeah, so that that pretty much covers the 11K plus guys. But uh, what do you think about Day here at 10-2? I mean, he got off to a hot start to begin this season. I believe he had a victory and a T2, and it looked like he was in really good form. But I know some of the underlying data, and you mentioned the strokes gain trend stuff, wasn't as sharp, and we haven't seen him able to replicate those top performances he had at the very beginning of the season yet. Yeah, it's definitely been an interesting case. Um, you know, haven't seen Day since, um, well, I played last week at the Zurich Classic, but hard to put a lot of weight into that um, event. And so has it really played um, since the Masters beyond that? And just his, like you said, his underlying data, like it's, if you took away the, the putter and the hot putter, especially at Pebble Beach, the underlying numbers are just kind of meh, like not great off the tee, not great on approach, good short game, but that's not something that you're getting super excited about. Um, but I think that that's going to cause the ownership to be a little bit lower too. Uh, I guess when it comes down to it for, you know, a single entry, you know, one off build, I'd likely probably pass on day. Um, I'd probably pass on him in a cash game roster um, personally, but I think that it would make sense to have a little bit of tournament exposure because you're getting a discounted price you can still build those balanced rosters with him and um i think the ownership will be reasonable so yeah that's kind of where i'm sitting and you know going back to what you said the man on the underlying data uh you know most of the the top guys 9k plus when you're scrolling through that strokes game trends tool on dailyroto.com uh you know you've got the green bar on kind of the the strokes gained approach the strokes gained off the tee and not that everybody has a consistently, you know, right, you know, left to right high bar there, which indicates that they're gaining strokes on the field in that metric. Usually you see a few events here and there where somebody does really well in strokes gain off the tee, really well in strokes gain approach, because most of these golfers are have some sort of high end outing recently. And you look at days and there's just you know, not as many events, but the ones that are there, there's just absolutely nothing there to uh, get excited about, as you mentioned. So uh, 10K range, yeah, not too interested. Now, again, this 9K range, when we're talking about macro roster builds, I mentioned liking a lot. Uh, the one guy I didn't mention is we've got Patrick Reed up here, who has played you know, obviously won the Masters, played super well. He had a really impressive outing at the Valspar Championship as well in terms of strokes gained approach. Uh, he was one of the, the best in the field there. Uh, it seems like he's overpriced, though. And it's one of those things, that like, like how much stock do you put into such a big victory like the Masters? I think 
the best way to approach is probably the way we do with data golf where you know it's one event we account for the field strength we account for the course difficulty and we move on but i'm sure some other people uh given reads or prospect background might view that win at the masters at a higher light than we do <laughs> yeah and it's definitely one of those things where um it seems like fowler is a better player but if you looked at just the resumes on paper with some of the stuff that they've won now then you know people can make the argument that reed's career has been more successful um i, I think i'm probably off of reed i will say that the last comment on day that i think is really interesting is we look at like the the underlying numbers and they're all kind of like they look meh but um he hasn't finished outside the top 25 in a stroke play event since since the Open Championship last year, and that was a 27th place finish. So, despite all of that, he's still putting the ball in the hole as, as fast as uh, or faster than most golfers in the world. I think I'm, I'm probably going to be off of Reed. Um, I have a lot of interest in this entire range, like we had talked about. It's pretty easy to fit if you do build a team with Day. Uh, it's also pretty easy to fit if you want to start a team with a couple players in this range. And I think it's going to be a range that I attack pretty heavily. Uh, probably have a good bit of exposure to each of the golfers in this range, but I probably will not end up playing Patrick Reed. Uh, I, I think that DFS golf is in a place now where his ownership isn't going to be super high. I know people in the past used to chase performance after a big win, especially a high profile one like the Masters, but I don't really see that happening with Reed uh, when he carries the higher price tag to Hideki, Phil, Tiger, and, and Fleetwood. Um, so I think his ownership will, will kind of be in, you know, the, the low to mid teens, but I still don't have interest um, at that level. I wouldn't really have interest unless he was going to be owned in the single digit percentages uh you know who i'm excited to finally be on probably higher than the field tiger woods it seems like uh, we've been tentative and i think correctly in some regard maybe overly conservative in another regard with tiger woods as he's made his comeback and looks looks obviously really really good and i think the performance at the masters where he was pretty popular and you know he was fine he wasn't a good dfs play to end up but he made the cut and i think he did all right over the weekend uh, but the hype just seems to have died down on him i know our initial ownership projections on tiger woods have him you know not low owned but not the chalk that we've seen in some of these events despite having you know, one of the more favorable price tags i think um or at least it feels like one of the more favorable price tags and uh, what I like with Tiger is as we get more data, we are more confident that he's actually, you know, quote unquote back. He's 12th in strokes gained approach, 6th in strokes gained uh, around the green. He's 8th in strokes gained putting. The short game is just phenomenal for him. His swing speed's been great. He's third in club head swing average, which, you know, it's tough to draw a line from that to performance, but when you're just thinking of it more like, okay, is he really healthy? It, it does make you feel good. It makes you feel confident. The one concern, Colin, uh, has been somewhat erratic off the tee, and we mentioned this is the second longest course and par-adjusted distance. Uh, does that concern you at all? Um, it doesn't concern me a ton. I, I guess um, part of the reason I'm, I guess, a little bit less concerned is just the um, it sounds like the rough is going to be significantly lighter than what it was when they played the PGA Championship. And so um, it, it's one of those events where maybe you can still gain strokes off the tee if you are a tiny bit erratic. I guess there, there are some concerns. Um, I think one of the biggest concerns is just the, the margin for error when projecting Tiger's ownership is pretty pretty high compared to most golfers and so we'll see how the week carries along like all it takes is one good report about a practice round where tiger shoots 65 or something and the hype starts starts to build up and all of a sudden he's loaded into rosters he's 25 percent owned things like that you know i definitely think it's funny that uh early on in his return the the model that the data golf guys have was uh, becoming a little bit famous for being the one that hates tiger but it's actually projecting as one of the best values in this field and so it seems like a play that i'm 
I'm going to slide in there unless he gets up to like 30% ownership, which seems like it won't happen at this point. Um, definitely going to play him and probably going to end up playing Phil too. So it kind of turned back the clocks for me this week, I guess, with those two guys. Yeah, and then you, I mean, you've also got Fleetwood in here, who I think's okay play. Hideki, who I just always seem to be on Hideki, but the guy that I've been all about all year this year in data golf has spurred me on from Paul Casey there at $8,900. Uh, I've made this comparison before, but it holds true that his 40-round rolling strokes gained average is the same as Jordan Spieth, so someone who's played really, really well. Uh, over the last year or two and at 8900 seems like a pretty safe play i do know that uh he sort of backdoored stuff at the masters where he made the cut on the number then that had that amazing final round you know threatening the course record there for a little bit and then he comes out the next week and because of that final round we're like okay you know whatever whispers about his hip early on in the masters are totally garbage he's fine he's healthy uh, he's going to dominate a weaker field and then he ends up missing the cut the following week <laughs> yeah I, I mean that was definitely um I guess that was definitely frustrating. Both, both the Masters, the way he started out, and and then the RBC Heritage performance. Um, but he he's a really solid play, and the price tag is a bit absurd. I was really surprised when I opened it up that he wasn't up closer to 10K. Feels like the pricing soft this week in general, but especially so on Casey. You know, he allows you to comfortably roster other top golfers such as Rory or JT if you want to go that way. He also lets you load up on balanced teams if you want to go there. Probabilities have him with nearly an 80% chance to make the cut, which is the highest of any golfer price below $9,000. Like you mentioned, he did miss the cut his last time out at the RBC Heritage, but prior to that, he had posted a top 20 finish in 16 of his previous 18 events. So I think he offers a rare mix of safety and tons of upside this week and is definitely a guy that you should be looking to roster. Yeah, especially one that could be your third most expensive golfer. Um, But as we move down this 8K range, Tony Finau, uh, that was agonizing at the Masters for me because I I had a good amount of Finau. The ankle thing happened. I got off of him and announced he was playing. It was so close to lock. I didn't make some switches. So I had this weird... Uh, perspective cheering for him where I wanted him to do well because I'm a big fan but I didn't want him to do too well where I really regretted my decision but uh, someone who's got plenty of distance certainly um, super high upside golfer I know that term gets thrown around loosely but I think for him it makes sense when uh, you look at his approach skills and his length off the tee and he has been better I think we've covered that on this podcast this year he has been better uh, around the green in terms of short game this season than he was you know last year which seemed to hold them back a few times yeah and i just uh, real quick just on the other range i definitely still um like hideki and fleetwood um i like fleetwood maybe a little bit more than the projections probabilities do so we kind of talked about that range a good bit but probably would get exposure to most of those golfers not named patrick reed uh i think the most interesting guy for me like in this range is probably brooks kepka uh if you know i I like. I think he's a good fit for this course. Um, I thought it was pretty badass. You see the picture of his ankle after the Masters, and you just think that he was playing through that and putting up that type of performance at Augusta with an ankle like that. It just shows what an athlete he is. And one of the rare times that you get to see like a golfer playing through such a painful injury. I uh, usually only hear those stories for the NHL playoffs. But uh, I like Kepka is a GPP um, flyer. Definitely some concerns um, coming back from injury. First event was the Zurich Classic. Uh, but like I said, he did finish first in strokes game tee to green at this course in the PGA Championship. Um, when his game is on, this is definitely the type of course that you'd want to target Brooks Kepka at. And I think that the questions about his injury will keep the ownership low. And so um, he's a guy that I'm, I'm willing to take a gamble on um, just because I think that his long-term talent is um, higher than the guys who are priced below him, like Ryan Moore or Webb Simpson, who right now might carry more ownership just because their recent form is a little bit stronger. Yeah, I think that's a, a bet that I'm going to take as well. Uh, moving to the lower 8K range, uh, Alex Noren seems like it's uh, a really solid play there, $8,100, just given where he's been at. But another guy that 
has that, you know, I hate to come back to the word upside, but I view Daniel Berger as someone long off the tee that when he's got it going, you know, he can threat into contend, and he's another guy we've got projected for around 5% ownership. I mean, you start a team with Berger and Kepka, I feel like you've got a whole ton of leverage, and you haven't spent a whole ton of money to get two guys that could T10. Yeah, and, and that is definitely one way to go. Um, a couple of the interesting names in this range, uh, I guess, are Ryan Moore and Webb Simpson, uh, who look like they're going to carry decently heavy ownership. Um, Moore had been, I guess, unspectacular before his past few events, but his strokes gain trends are um, looking quite nice, especially his strokes gain approach, but even getting strokes off the tee. And that was one of the things that was a little bit surprising at the last kind of PGA event that we saw, which was the Valero Texas Open for from a fantasy perspective, was just what a strong performance he had there. Doesn't seem like the guy that you would consider a good course fit when you think about the, you know, off the tee and bomber narrative, but um, is a guy that seems like he's going to carry a little bit of ownership um, early in the week. And then Webb Simpson, it's it's Webb's home course. He's done well here in the past. Uh, the price feels like it's certainly fair, um, and the ownership will be there. So I'm not quite sure what I'm going to do with, with him in tournaments. Um, definitely agree that moving down to Norin is um, preferable for me. Uh, for safety, especially compared to Kepka. Um, and I think Finau, Kepka, Norin are all guys that I want in tournaments. Uh, early this week, I think Bryson is one of the more, Bryson DeChambeau is one of the more polarizing plays, I guess, of this range, generating a fair bit of chatter. He definitely pops in any models that are, are built on strokes gained metrics or par five scoring from some of the big outlier upside events that he's had this year but is a guy that does not project well in the model and looks like it could be bad shock. I'm curious if you think he's worthy of a manual adjustment or if you're kind of inclined to trust the data. I'm kind of inclined to trust the data, and I think we've seen, you know, with a few guys it feels like this week, you know, as time evolves, obviously we're, you know, using like the the breakdown of the last couple months, last year, last six months, last two years, like all that data is being fed into the model. And as uh, some of the bad older data gets dropped off, it feels like this week specifically, uh, we've seen a few jumps in guys and Bryson actually seemed like he jumped a bit more than where we have been projecting him. So I do think we're accounting for the fact that he's played really, really well this year. Uh, maybe you could give a little bit of a manual adjustment for the other reasons that you mentioned, Colin, but ultimately he's not someone I expected to see uh, priced at 8k and to carry you know maybe three times the ownership of a burger who we already talked about of a Brooks Kepka. so if he was $500 $2,000 cheaper he's someone that I would be forcing into my lineups but I think he would just naturally project uh, pretty well as an okay value if he was I just think the price here isn't great and if you're not getting a great price and you're not getting an ownership discount uh, you know it just seems Seems like not smart strategy to go out of your way to force someone just because other people are, if that yeah. makes sense. Yeah, it definitely does, especially the ownership is kind of usually when you're thinking about a reason to make such a heavy manual adjustment, it's because you're, you know, in a completely different place from the market. And so therefore the ownership's going to be there. And maybe even if you are wrong, it's just not worth it because the ownership is there. Anyways, uh, I think Daniel Berger is an interesting pivot off of him right now projected for just 5% ownership, have him with 25% odds to finish inside the top 20. He's not a screaming value. I think there are guys priced much cheaper that we have um, as slight favorites, but I think the the ownership and the leverage is really something that you're getting there with this high 7K range. I think when you look at sort of the trends and roster construction, it feels like there's going to be a lot of ownership that kind of gets soaked up in some of the ranges we've covered. I think we'll get to it as we get into the $7,000 range. I think there's going to be a lot of ownership soaked up around 7400 or so. Uh, and in this top end of the 7K range in the low 8K range with Berger, Harmon, Duffner, Keegan Bradley, James Hahn, I can see all going for sub 5% ownership. And they're not screaming values, but when you get them at that low ownership, 
ownership, I do think that they start to make some sense in the, the leverage metric. Yeah, I'm always a fan of Ben Ahn. You know, if he could ever have a good putting week, it seems like uh, he could put together a really good performance because he's someone that we see really strong, tee to green, pretty consistently. And uh, to your point of this high 7K range going under owned, the reason I think you have that is uh, you've got a guy like, you know, Chazen Hadley, who really, I feel like a weird trend for him where he was super chalky like earlier in the year with some good performances and there was the one week where i got him at pretty low ownership and he had a good performance and of course that really benefited strokes gain approach uh but then he went right back to being pretty chalky again and he's someone that at 7500 with the looser pricing that we've hit on uh seems like he could be more of a fade in this range for some of those other guys that you mentioned yeah, I think that's probably the case if the early ownership projections hold. I think he's he's not significantly underpriced on DraftKings, even if you like him. I think he he might be you know priced fairly if you like him, and maybe a little bit overpriced if you don't love him. Uh, he is underpriced on FanDuel, and so I could see you know a lot of merit going that route. And especially if you're you're somebody who follows kind of the the Vegas odds as one of the the leading indicators, um, definitely feels like someone there. Uh, I think I would for sure rather get the lower ownership on, um, I'm surprised he slipped past you, but Byung Han on at 7,600 seems like a better pivot off of Hadley at below 10% projected ownership, above 20% projected odds to finish inside the top 20. Uh, if you look at the data golf historical course snapshot, uh, on is a guy that projects nicely as far as the course fit and the strokes gained um, here and so maybe not somebody that has the sort of traditional course history but somebody who who does pop in some of that uh, course history index type metrics yeah, Ben on, uh, I'm definitely a big fan. That, that's actually who I was mentioning, mentioning before. Maybe it sounded like I said Han, um, but, but I did mean Ben on there. I've got a pretty good history with him. He almost had an, I forgot what event it was, but he almost had an albatross that won me a whole bunch of money. It just like lipped out one week, but who cares about my, uh, personal history playing guys in DFS? <laughs> um, another guy that rates well for us in this group is Bill Haas. I'm not as high on him as the model. But then as you move down into some lower pricing guys, you know, Terrell Haddon's an interesting guy to figure um, for a while there. You know, we were liking him at pretty expensive price tags. And then uh, he had a couple poor performances. He's dropped back down as we've seen the data smooth out there. And then Luke List also at $7,400, who was on that fantastic role for a while. And then I believe he missed a cut when he was massive chalk. At least he was massive chalk on FanDuel. I I think that was the art. Was that the RBC Heritage or was that um, the the Valspar? Am I? Uh, yeah, I think I think he was uh, like been. Oh, I think he's been like decently owned in the the teens. Um, but then a little bit of chalk at the Heritage, and then a lot of chalk um, when he was much more expensive at the Valero Texas Open. Valero, that's that's yeah. Valero, he was like forty percent on FanDuel. So um, it is surprising though to see, at least in my opinion, I don't know if you feel differently, Colin, to see a pretty harsh uh, drop off in price tag from where we had been seeing him, you know, most of the year after the hot start. Yeah, big drop in pricing. Um, I think this is a range that by like V2, V3, the ownership projections, things will change pretty dramatically. Um, Miliano Grio at 7,700 is gotten a lot of the early week chatter. I like him. He, he's project nicely. I think he would make sense for three max builds. I think a site like FanDuel, I think he makes sense for cash. I think, um, for DraftKings, if he's going to, if his ownership projection stays where it is, I think you need to consider a fade. Um, but if it comes back down to like 10% or so, I think it starts to put him back into the equation. The 7,400 range is really, uh, where I'm kind of keen to see the ownership projections shake out. You kind of have lists, Molinari, Haddon Hadwin, Woodland, and then if you want to lump Adam Scott, uh, who's a little bit cheaper, but if you want to lump him into that range as well at 7,300, you have guys that could soak up a, a good bit of ownership. They all project really nicely in the model right now. Uh, very similar players as far as their top 20 odds between 27% and 30%. Uh, and right now, the ownership projection is between 5 and 10%. I would expect some of that to come up. I don't know if... Um, I, I guess like... 
a year ago, two years ago in DFS, it felt like a miscut from someone like Luke List and everyone would be off of him. But the strokes gain data for him is so solid that anyone who's using a site like Fantasy National feels like they'll probably be on a guy like List for longer than just one event. And it feels like the recency bias isn't quite there. So I would expect that ownership projection to to tick up. Um, I'm hoping it doesn't because I definitely want to play him. Seems like a course that should be a, a good fit when you talk about a course that demands really strong TD Green play when you talk about a course that uh, is looking for guys who can get the ball out there. All of that would lead me to prefer List over um, over our boy Molinari. I like Molinari <laughs> fine, but I think if I can only play one of them in the 7400 range, it would be List. Yeah, and I mean, we've just seen so much consistency, uh, especially like off the tee. We mentioned it's going to be important, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, six events in a row. He's gaining strokes off the tee by a decent margin. Uh, eight of the last nine, he's gained strokes off the tee. Uh, and someone who's played a lot this year, which I think gives you a bit more confidence because we've just been able to see him do it so many times this year. It's not someone that's played, you know, five or six times and had four really good events and you know the sample size is a bit smaller so obviously we still want to incorporate the long-term data uh, but we just have more of the recent data with Luke List than we do with some of the other golfers so I definitely feel pretty strong strongly about him uh, I know another guy that seemed you know talk about Chazen Hadley a guy that uh, seems to generally be popular except for that one little dip with uh, DFS Twitter and and golf betting Twitter another guy here uh, Jenner Shofferly uh it seems like he's always chalky too, but it might not be the case this week just because you're inundated with so many names in this low 7K range. I mean, there's so many golfers uh, listed between like $7,200 and $7,400. Even just going down to the 7K to $7,400, you've got, um, you're just overwhelmed with names, quite frankly. Yeah, tons of names, and I think that's great. Like you said, um, he was a guy that was popular also at the Valero Texas Open. Um, I think he made the cut but finished, like, dead last or something um, outside of the top 50 for sure in that event. And it seems like the ownership's going to come down and the price is coming down. And so that's another example of someone that – you know, we, I think the projections have always thought was a decent golfer, but felt like he was overpriced in DFS and overowned. And so we probably didn't have him in tournaments. I think he definitely makes sense for a, a tournament play. Um, a lot of bad putters in this range, which is it sort of mm-hmm. fits the course. It sort of fits what you're looking for, but it also makes you a little bit uneasy because you could load up and like you think you're diversifying off of these golfers, but you're really just loading up on more and more bad putters. <laughs> I think Molinari, you talked about like how tilting it was when we didn't have him at this event last year because he wasn't a great course fit. And then he finished inside the top five at the PGA Championship, had gained six strokes uh, on the field putting in that event. So not something that we'd necessarily expect to come, but he still played strong td green adam scott is another one of those guys that um has you can make a pretty good team of guys who miss the cut the valero texas open down here with list (laughs) adam scott and then uh, xander made the cut but poor finish so i mean i mean i like those guys i'm kind of a sucker for guys who are putting poorly and seems like there's so much ownership to get distributed that um maybe no one player gets uh too far out of control and you can definitely find some guys that are going to have three four percent ownership who have i mean i guess they have winning upside but they definitely have top 10 upside that's not an unreasonable you know outcome no not at all i I do think molinari seems like the guy that everyone except for me is afraid to admit that they're playing and i feel like his ownership ends up a bit higher and with the good finish at this course last year i wouldn't be surprised if that one ticked up as you mentioned this group as a whole we could see an uptick in ownership but uh sticking with the bad putter theme uh two guys that can drive the ball quite a long ways that are bad putters here in the $7,300 range. You got Jason Kokrak and JB Holmes as, and I think those are guys that merit sprinkles. If you're mass multi-entering tournaments, or even if you're three maxing, um, you might not want too much exposure to these guys, but I think they're um, pivots. But a lot of that, again, though, Colin does come back to, uh, do we see Adam Scott at like 15 plus percent ownership or does it get smoothed out enough with all of these names that he's more like eight to nine, in which case maybe you're not getting uh, maybe the leverage you're getting from pivoting off a Scott to a Kokrak and Holmes isn't worth it. Whereas if they're like two percent and he's like 13 to 15 percent, yeah, then it then it starts to make a lot of sense. Yeah. And I think that um, like 
Holmes, I have a little bit more. I don't know. Maybe it's just a bias. I would rather play Holmes than Kokrak. I think Kokrak's price on FanDuel is in an area where he um, becomes a little bit more relevant um, as far as like the pricing is pretty tough over there this week as far as trying to put together a bunch of teams. Um, one of the other names that seems steady. Uh, projected about 65% chance to make the cut. I think he would be a guy that you could look to in, in cash games if you wanted to go down um, cheaper would be a guy like Kevin Streelman, but it's in tournaments, it seems like the ownership's going to be up there at a point that there's not, you know, the odds of him coming inside the top 20 are, are similar to those guys that we talked about before, but the ownership looks a little bit higher. So I think in the $7,200 range, I think both Streelman and Charles Howell um, perhaps offer a little bit of comfort for a couple hundred bucks in savings. Um, and then I think one of the other guys that I'd be interested in gambling on for tournaments that definitely has the distance is Jamie Lovemark. Uh, projected around 5% ownership right now, and that seems like a guy that would be a good GPP pivot that isn't generating any chatter. Definitely a lot of risk of ruin with a play like that, um, but I think you could take a 10 or 15% stance in tournaments and, and get pretty leveraged up on the field. Yeah, Lovemark was actually a guy I was going to hit on. As you said, he's got the distance, and we've also seen him gain strokes approach uh, in a handful of events recently. And I guess it's just one of those things where if you buy the strokes gain trends, you know, do you buy into that that uh, he's going to keep performing at that level in strokes gain approach? Because if you go back then three or four events, he had like three, three or four events in a row where he lost strokes gain approach. So it just kind of depends how you break down that data. But recently, he certainly looked strong in that department. Uh, one of the guys that our model seems to always like and the guy that we have with the highest made cut probability below 7k is Lucas Glover uh, and Glover correct me if I'm wrong Colin will also continue the trend of bad putting yeah bad putting uh Good course history for Glover. So he, he's won the Wells Fargo Championship before. Um, he's played well here, generally speaking, as far as Lucas Glover uh, courses go. Made it the cut 10 to 12 times. He's got that victory. And, yeah, fits fits the mold for good driver of the ball, really strong tee to green, bad putter. Uh, I would say... Most of the times, this sub $7,000 range has been a complete dead one for me. Um, usually looking for guys with, you know, 15 to 20% odds to finish inside the top 20. It seems like maybe there's a little bit, um, that would hit my radar in 20 max builds and would definitely hit it if I built more than 20 teams. So Glover is one of those guys that, uh, I think his ownership projection will tick up a little bit as the week goes along, especially with that course history uh, and with the course fit stuff that we're talking about. Uh, I think Grayson Murray is another guy that I was interested in um, when I just first opened up the probabilities and fantasy projections. And then I got a little bit less interested in when I looked at the ownership projections. Um, but one of those guys that seems like people are always kind of betting for a first round leader, really strong uh, on, you know, par five scoring um, and has flashed, you know, the, the upside as far as some of the underlying metrics, but also is a little bit more volatile. And sometimes we talk about a guy that you might want to avoid when they're a little bit more popular. So a little bit torn with um, what to do if Glover ends up in that, you know, 10% to 15% ownership range. I guess I would probably end up matching the field in, in that case. Um, but I would like him a lot more if he stays at like 5%. Yeah, I think I feel similarly uh, the, the way you feel about Grayson Murray, I feel about uh, Mullinet, Trey Mullinax, who, you know, first looking at that price tag and some of the recent success, I get excited. And then I see an ownership projection into the double digits and then I get I get a lot less excited. And while we do have a bit more. Uh, you know, a bit of a larger list in terms of usable names at sub 7K, the really loose pricing overall kind of counteracts that a little bit, if that makes sense, where, um, yeah, relative to the other sub 7K guys, a Mullinax, a Murray, a Glover might look really good, but uh, when you look at your overall roster construction and, you know, a more balanced lineup where y you could have a, your sixth golfer be a lot more 
overall talented than these guys. So I guess it just comes down to, you know, how many lineups are you going to build with the 10k plus golfers because that's going to flood down to you you know forcing you to take some of the tap relief where dropping down from 7400 to 6800 might be a big deal yeah i think uh that definitely all of that makes sense i think i agree with your mullinax take uh, i think him grace and murray they kind of fit in that same range um if ownership gets distributed and the the projections are a little high right now then it might have some interest uh other guy that i think is worthy of digging a level deeper on is neiman uh who has been pro i believe for one event i don't remember if he turned right before or um, right before the masters or right after the masters but finished six at the valero texas open was the number one uh ranked amateur golfer in the world before turning pro and so that is a good example of a guy that has very little data he's um only played a couple of tour events being the u.s open the greenbrier the masters and then the valero texas open and uh it's going to be hard to model somebody like that with the type of methodology that the data golf guys use, even using the probability model, which factors in the webbook.com PGA tour and European tour data. And so I think he's somebody that um, is worthy of kind of a level deeper exploration. Uh, seems like the ownership will, will be, you know, kind of, it'll be there. It'll be present. Uh, but I think he's a guy that long-term is really interesting. And I think is someone that in, you know, three years, you're probably going to be, looking at in that you know 9k or so range and so definitely um, an mme guy that i think is worthy of the oprah sprinkle the Oprah Sprinkle. Uh, he just finished sixth at the Valero Texas Open, back to back 67s to close out uh, his weekend there. So really coming off a really strong performance. Uh, so Colin, any like macro thoughts, whether it's specific to this tournament or just the DFS golf in general that you have? I know we've seen uh, a lot of chatter recently about you know what what event do you prefer as far as DraftKings putting out weekend golf versus the showdown slates they're putting out. Uh, so really, really just the floor is yours. Uh, yeah, thanks. The floor is mine. Um, <laughs> I would say the as we kind of got through everything, um, to me, it, it seems like the pricing and the ownership is uh, at least fairly efficient at the top end of the range. I think that no guys are jumping out as standout leverage plays, um, at least within the, the margin of error of the ownership projections. And so I guess I'm more likely to, um, first of all, I like a lot of players up in that range. I want to grab a bunch of them anyways, but I guess I'm more likely just to kind of grab the guys that I like opposed to trying to force things for the sake of being contrarian. Um, I do think that the $7,000 range is one where there's so many names that we've talked about and there's a lot of merit to, to all of them. And I think the, the kind of thought process I'm trying to figure out is whether or not I want to make a couple of big fades so I can grab more exposure to low owned guys just because at face value, I do have preferences for some of these players, um, like like I mentioned, like a Luke List. Um, but the preferences aren't like so strong that if they're massive chalk, that I want to ignore them. So I'm going to be focusing this week on probably building mostly um, balanced lineups, hopefully balanced contrarian lineups, and then using the $7,000 range as the area that I make pivots using the leverage score metric, which you can get if you want to look at the T20 odds from the data golf probability model with our ownership projections over at Daily Roto. All right, Colin, you didn't take my bait on the uh, showdown versus weekend golf. So Yeah, so I not- would say that like <laughs> the one thing that I've been really struggling with, um, I think the showdown for like round one, round two, round three, I don't think there's a huge difference between that and weekend golf. I think there's some kind of the same uh, biases are there for people to fall into. It's a little bit more variance just because of the short um, one slate versus uh, two slates, but you get to play it twice. So I think the hardest thing for me has been that round four showdown and trying to figure out what to do. And the big difference with that one is you get place points. Um, so usually people gravitate towards the top end of the pricing range or of the leaderboard when they're making weekend or showdown rosters. And usually that is um, kind of a mistake except that now the pricing and the scoring is set up so that it's actually you know going to favor that approach in general and so with the amount of birdies that golfers make in a round projections wise usually like decently close together the the bankable points for the place points seems like something that you definitely want exposure to but it's also where all the ownership is and so 
with that, it's just been a struggle with me to figure out. Like, I don't think you could just fade everyone in the top five like you probably could for like the normal showdown slates. And so it's like, how many of those golfers do you want to play? Do you want to load up on a few of them? Do you want to sprinkle out and just kind of like set caps as far as having two or three per roster? I haven't figured it out. Uh, I'm sure there's an edge there, but it's not one that I've been able to realize. Yeah, I do. Uh, one of my pet peeves, though, with the way people have treated the showdown golf, because I do think DraftKings is making a mistake with some of these showdown slates where they're relying on them too much, making them the main game format. We saw it with the NBA playoffs, where instead of having a three-game slate over two days, they're doing a showdown slate one day and a two-game slate the next day. The difference, in my opinion, with golf is you're not limited in your player pool by having a showdown slate versus weekend golf. Like that's the big problem with other sports, whether it's NFL, MLB, NBA, what have you, is you're limiting the player pool and that makes it more difficult for the showdown golf. You're not limiting the player pool at all by saying, Hey, you, you have to make a team. You can make a team Friday, Saturday, and Sunday instead of having one team Saturday and Sunday. Uh, but, and what you're doing is you're giving yourself more chances to, if there's an edge to, maximize that edge and to realize your expected value from that. So while there might be more variance in a single showdown slate versus a single weekend slate, uh, I do think that you're more likely to realize your edge over two to three showdown slates than you are over a single weekend slate. So I, I, I might be in the minority, but I actually do prefer the showdown slates. They are uh, still, you know, well, I guess they are. We are, as you mentioned, still working out the wrinkles with that fourth round showdown slate with the place points. My initial instinct, I haven't played it enough to see it in practice, was that the emphasis on the scoring, though, it seems like if a guy makes a like two birdies, or I'm trying to... I think it was like so it, if a guy does up like two shots, like doesn't that totally counteract like the place points, like a but, birdie but like, for one guy versus a bogey for another guy? But but on the oh, a birdie versus bogey, maybe not. Maybe two birdies might. Um, but on the flip side, like you're starting out with a two bogey or a two birdie lead if you're in that position, yeah. and so like that's a pretty big lead. Um, to have when guys are generally projected so close. I also think it matters a lot. Like the Volvo China Open, for example, like guys were shooting eight under par. So there were tons of birdies, and I don't think the place points matter quite as much in that format, even though they still might matter a little bit. Um, whereas like this week, there's not going to be a ton of birdies. There's not going to be a ton of birdie streaks. You know, at the US Open, when they have it for that event, there's not going to be a ton of birdies. And so it feels like it is dynamic in the fact that. It, those place points are going to matter a lot for some events and they're going to matter less for other events. And so it's a really interesting format. Um, I think for the round four, it's just one that like I haven't figured out the right approach. I'm sure there is one, but yeah. Yeah. And it also will matter, you know, how clustered those scores are up top, but I just want to thank everybody for tuning in to going for the green on the fantasy sports network. Please rate and review us on iTunes. It really does help us out. Goes a long way. Make sure you check out the data golf projections on dailyroto.com. Just go to dailyroto.com slash premium and check out any of our premium packages. We've got seasonal, monthly, weekly. So you can check out any time frame you want. Thanks for tuning in. Best of luck this weekend.